Welcome to A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar, a podcast with relatively well-informed and irreverent musings on religion, news, and society. And now, for your hosts, Rabbi Asher Lopatin and John Geringer. Hey, John, how are you? Doing great, Asher. It's Adar. We're supposed to be happy, right? It, it absolutely. The truth is, I hate to say it, I feel like a little bit of a curmudgeon. Adar, you know, it, it's not always the happiest month. It's supposed to be lucky. And, uh, you know, there were so many sad things that happened in the past week. And, you know, still terrorist incidents in Israel. And then everything going on. And then Israelis, some, a very small number, but behaving terribly in Wara. So, it's a complicated month, but it is. Yes, it's we're got, we got to be happy. It's supposed to be a happy month, and you're supposed to be shenichnas adar marvin besimcha. When adar comes in, you gotta be extra happy. But you know, maybe it's being extra happy because it's not everything is always happy. But we'll work on it. Yes. Well, and one of those examples was the neo Nazis wanted to dedicate last week Shabbat to the Day of Hate. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, there, there was all this chatter and I feel it can't, it can't slow us down. And, you know, they don't have a monopoly on hatred. You know, hate is, that was all question. Mayor Yaakov Soloveitchik wrote a, an article, The Virtue of Hate, which was attacked by some, but he argues that we do are supposed to hate certain things. And we'll talk, I think, later on about Amalek, but whether or not there are certain things we hate racism, we hate intolerance, we hate anti-Semitism, we hate bigotry. And then I had a great congregant who said, this is a great day. This I all the, I hate a lot of things. I want to I want to celebrate hate day. So of course we want to fill everything with love and, and we shouldn't have hatred in our hearts. But yeah, it is unfortunate if it scared anybody and if it slowed us down at all from being the kind of Jews and the kind of human beings that we need to be, then then it is unfortunate. How was it in Chicagoland? Well, being one of the Shomrim, the, the honor guards, so to speak, who don't carry the weapons, but who question people coming in to make sure they belong there. One of the congregants, who longstanding congregant, older woman comes up to me, grabs me by the arm and says, you know, when I said something about how was your day of hate coming along as a joke, she said, and I won't repeat it exactly on the podcast, but she said, F them. And I thought that was the perfect symbol of defiance for how we need to think about these folks. Yeah, no, absolutely. We have to always be careful. And unfortunately, there have been so many tragedies of people that are hateful, but we just can't let them control our lives. And that's sort of what they would like to do. So no, don't, we We can't let that happen. I'm glad we have things in place like Shomrim. We have a guard in front of our synagogue. The government has been very generous. I think almost every synagogue in the country has new windows from the government's grant of bulletproof yep. windows. So, you know, we're lucky that we have the apparatus and well, I mean, we're speaking of that, there's a big news item this week of some disturbed person who was threatening Jews in the Michigan legislature and positions of political power. And the FBI caught him and he's arrested and he had a bunch of guns with him. It is a little scary, but, and and he's part of the a sovereign state group, you know, they, they're, they don't yep. hold of America. So, you know, people are saying like anti-Semitism is also the canary in the coal mine that, you know, it goes along with everything else. 
They don't like Jews. They don't like African-Americans. They don't like minorities. They don't like immigrants. They don't like America. <laughs> you know, like they don't know anything. Well, that's true. We're, we're having a conference, our center coming up soon on domestic violent extremism. And from having looked at it from a bunch of different angles, you know, the, some of those folks are not patriotic like they say they are. They claim to be super patriots, but they're not patriotic to the America you and I know and love. They're patriotic to a white, Christian, anti-gay, a, a lot of what Russia is becoming more so than they are patriotic to what America is. Yeah, like they should go to Russia and enjoy. What a great place. You know? Yeah, and enjoy the free speech that's offered to them there. The only guy I do like Snowden, and he's, I think he's still in Russia. He hasn't even heard from him, but. Did you uh, say you liked him? Well, yeah, I, I watched the movie and I think that there was information. I'm a big transparency person. So I think I don't want him to reveal important secrets, but I like transparency. I don't think the government was so transparent. Remember, I'm a baby boomer and I remember the, the CIA of the 50s and 60s and Edgar Hoover's FBI, you know, so I'm suspicious of these people. I'm open to some pushback, John. Oh, you're going to get a lot of pushback. <laughs> I teach this stuff. <laughs> and yeah, no, he, he has probably caused more damage than almost anybody else in terms of dollars spent, national security reduced, unclear as to what secrets our bad guys have, you know, to the point where we, we just don't know exactly what he disclosed. And because of that, because of the cleanup that had to be done after his disclosure and the way he could have done it, in a more authorized channel that wouldn't have created the mess that he left. So I, I'm going to respectfully disagree <laughs> with you. This may be the first time we have such no. disagreement on anything in 20, however many episodes right, we've had. Right. Well, we haven't talked about Pollard really. So we can, we, we can have one episode on, on this kind of stuff. Now, and you're an expert in this area. I'm just a, a rabbi. So I also would challenge like, why didn't Snowden come forward in an authorized way? You know, at least at least in the movie, it didn't seem like that would have been so practical. But uh, fair enough. I fair enough. So let let's get closer. To <laughs> How did we get on to that? How did we get? Oh, Russia. That's right. Yeah, these they hate the people. Russia, that, Russia, uh, Russia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of our enemies, Amalek in 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 the Torah and elsewhere talks about this nation called Amalek. Who were they? What are we supposed to do with them then? What are we supposed to do with them now? Who are they now? Do they still exist? So it's very important to two things about Amal. First, I, three things, I guess. Point one is that it actually, I'm I'm a little bit wrong. It doesn't say to ever to hate Amalek. It does say to wipe them out, but it never says to hate them. And so, which is very different, which is a lot of times they always go together. These people... You hate them. You think they're disgusting. You think they're the worst and you got to kill them. It's not that way. It's that they are a danger to you and they attacked you, but not that doesn't talk about hatred and we shouldn't act. We should never act out of, out of hatred. But also Amalek, the other thing to remember as our rabbis say that, and, and it's pretty evident from the, from the Torah, from the Torah and from the whole Bible, from Tanakh, that you can only act in this way, this is this nation that you're supposed to wipe out completely and not even all the booty, even all their cows and everything. It's not take any booty or anything from them. It's only with the order of a prophet, of a true prophet. So 
this past week we read about the prophet Samuel tells the king Saul to attack Amalek. So it's first of all, it's not it can't be out of hatred. Second of all, it's only on the directions of a prophet. So don't do this at home. And, and then the third thing is that our rabbis say in the Talmud, it's well established that there are no the nations that we read about in the Bible, they don't exist anymore. The rabbis say that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and Bilbel at Kolamim, and he mixed everyone up. So there's no such thing as this nation or that nation. You know, you, you can't do 23andMe or, you know, and find out who's <laughs> Amalek. Doesn't exist. So really, a lot of our sages, our rabbis over the last millennia have said that Amalek and true anti-Semitism, people that hate the Jews for no real reason and for no justifiable reason. They just have hatred of Jews. And, and sadly, we see a lot of that. There's an obsession with the Jews that doesn't make any sense. And that's really what it represents. The Torah tells us both to never forget this kind of anti-Semitism, but to dream and to work towards a world that this anti-Semitism doesn't exist. And we're, unfortunately, we're struggling with an increase in this kind of irrational hatred and not so easy to, to wipe it out. So is it more effective to say that they are the, the spiritual heirs of Amalek? Yeah. That's, that's a great way of putting it. And our rabbis talk about that Amalekites can convert, not even just to Judaism, and they can really disavow what they did. It's sort of like, you know, it's always interesting seeing people make, uh, you know, whether it's racist remarks like the guy who does Dilbert uh, or Kyrie Irving. They really disavowing when they have statements of hatred, do they really disavow what they've said? Or, you know, in Israel, a politician who might say that, oh, a city should be wiped out. And then they say, well, I was like, I didn't mean that. So, it, it, but if an Amalekite really disavows their their hatred and, and converts either to, you know, to Judaism or to a, a moral stance, then they're not part of the Amalek anymore. So it definitely goes back to your idea, John, that it's really the spiritual heirs of this hateful nation. And we've seen a few examples just in, in recently of, of either neo-Nazis or oh, other domestic yeah. violent extremist groups who are doing tshuva, who are coming to the other side, who are real, realizing the the error in their ways. So we should welcome in our tent, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, and if we can defeat, there are some, I think, more Hasidish, you know, sort of spiritual reads of this text that if we can destroy the memory of Amalek through love and by bringing people around that they're not hating anymore, then we've we've accomplished what we need to accomplish. So it's not just through killing people, which again, you can't do because we don't have any profits around anymore, according to our tradition. But it, it could be really through love and education. And uh, a lot of groups are really working on that. I'm hoping that through building relationships. I'm not saying all anti-Semites are, are Amalek, but, you know, people that are filled with prejudice, and we all have prejudices, the more we build relationships, the more sometimes those prejudices can can disappear. And that's also that this process of fighting Amalek within us. I love it. Well, let's talk Purim. It's sneaking up on us. Unbelievable. Are you prepared? 
Yeah, it's so scary. You know, as a rabbi, we have the flyer. My wife, Rachel, does the organized. That's what she's doing right now as we speak. She's organizing our little Purim carnival and the synagogue. And we have a lot of little kids. You know what? Purim, even if you're not so prepared, it comes out okay. I don't know. Are you One of the commandments of Purim is Mishloch Manot, is uh, sending food gifts to friends. Are, are, are the Geringers big on Mishloch Manot? We, we used to be. Jen used to get up early with friends and drive things around and stuff like that. Now we've, I think we hit the bare halachic minimum of, what is it, two? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, two different foods to a one person. Yeah, yeah. Right, e- exactly. So let's take a step back. Purim, give us the cliff notes on the story. Well, yeah, the, the Jews are living in Persia, They're, and the Persian Empire encompasses as the, the Book of Esther, the Megillah of Esther tells us the whole world, basically. So all the Jews are under the Persian kingdom, and they're vulnerable. They're a successful community, but they're vulnerable. And uh, the king seems to be all-powerful. The king's assistant, Haman, one of his key ministers. Oh, oh, there he goes. So when we read that name, there's a tradition. We we read the book of Esther in the evening. And the next day, there's a tradition to boo when you hear the name Haman. So Haman uh, rises, becomes the top dog in the government of Ahasuerus, of the Persian king. And because Mordechai, who is another minister who happens to be Jewish, so it's sort of like, you know, I don't know who's in office now, you know, one of the secretaries, like Kissinger or something like that, but a little bit more (laughs) current, sorry, becomes, refuses to bow down to Haman. It's like one, you know, why should I have to bow down to Haman? But Haman wants, everyone's bowing down to Haman and he refuses. Haman gets angry. And instead of saying, I just want to kill Mordechai, he says, I want to kill all the Jews. He represents the Jews. I want to kill all the Jews. I think he has a feeling that the Jews also are like Mordechai. They're not going to worship him the way he wants to be worshipped. The story is about how Mordechai's niece, according to is Esther. In a sidebar, she becomes the queen. You got to read the Megillah to find out how that happens. She hides her Jewish identity. And and even the name Esther is from Ishtar, is not a Jewish name per se, originally. So she is, Mordechai says, you got to go to the king and tell him to stop this edict that Haman had done, had, had codified to kill all the Jews. And eventually she goes to the king and the edict is removed. Doesn't, there's a technicality that you can't really remove the edict so much, but Maybe more relevant, the Jews are allowed to defend themselves, which is really, I mean, John, again, you're you're a child of survivors. You know, it's so interesting when we think about the Jews of, of Europe and the Jews, you know, frankly, of the Arab world, of the Christian world and the Crusader period, not, you know, th- this idea of standing up to defend yourself sort of went into from the destruction of the temple in 70 CE all the way till Zionism sort of disappeared. Now, the Purim story happens well before that in, in like what, the seventh century or no, not something like seventh, I think seventh or eighth century of the before the common era. But this idea of Jews standing up for themselves and like, you know, John, you're part of the Shomrim. So, you know, maybe we've taken a little bit of that courage and the Jews defeat all the people that wanted to kill them and everyone's happy and everyone celebrates. How is that for a summary? 
That's pretty good. You know, the typical, they try to kill us. We beat them back. Let's eat. That applies perfectly for Purim. We have some big mitzvot that are accompanied with it. We have Kriyat Hamagila. We have to listen to the, the scroll on an on original scroll being read. Looks a little bit like a Torah, but not quite. Handwritten, um, handwritten. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We have Mishlach Manos that you mentioned earlier. We, we give gifts to our friends as, as probably to in, increase this network of friendship you mentioned earlier. We have Matanyot Levion, gifts to the poor. Right. Even, and it really should be balanced. You know, what we, we love our friends, you know, we have great friends and all that, and we love giving them nice gifts and food and all that. But the gifts to the poor should, really should equal the amount of money you're spending on Mishloch Manot, on the food gifts that you give to your friends. And, you know, a lot of places, it's really super fancy, these gifts to your friends. Okay, that's great. Thank God. You know, I don't, I love it. Give, you know, give me gifts. That's great. Scotch. But, but really try to equal the, what you're giving to your friends, to the needy, to the poor, to those that might not be your in your community or your friends. But so there are all sorts of ways to do it. One of the ways we do is we give to an organization and I collect from the whole synagogue and then I call it in Tuesday morning of Purim and I'll say, we have $1,000. Please give $1,000 to poor people in Detroit. And they have a way of giving it out. They won't know who, we don't know who's getting it. They don't know who's giving it, but really making, it's always a balance to make sure that you're treating self-care is very important and your vacations, caring for your friends, but then really caring for society also. Got it. And then the last one is Suda Purim. A Suda. Oh, that's great. And that's, I guess that's self-care, right? So that's, <laughs> that's a, well, it depends how much you drink, right? Tell us about getting so drunk we can't tell the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. Yeah, so it is mentioned in the Talmud about in the context of having a, a wonderful meal. So really treat yourself to a wonderful meal. It could be a great breakfast. It could be a lunch. It could be an early dinner while it's still Tuesday before sunset. Going in, So treat yourself to something really special. But part of that is also this idea of drinking because it was part of the Megillah the king, it seems like Esther was able to persuade the king to be a little bit more helpful because he was a little bit drunk. And a lot of things happened when he was drunk. And that's when he, anyway, Esther was able to become queen because the king was drunk and got rid of his previous wife. So Vashti. So drinking is an interesting thing, but as much as it says you should drink, the Talmud does say until you don't know the difference between blessed is Mordechai and wicked is Haman which by the way, in gematria, which we talked about before, the value of the letters actually is the same. Wow. But my son Judah makes a lot of arguments that it's not a mitzvah to get drunk. So I hate to be a party pooper on this podcast, but especially a rabbi and a lawyer go into a bar, you know, so... This is all about us. And I, <laughs> I, I did read somewhere that one of the explanations for that is you you drink a little to make you go to sleep. And when you're asleep, you can't tell the difference between the two. Yeah, that's sort of the, the party pooper explanation. Right. But you know, it's good. And the truth is, I've uh, I've had a lot to drink in my past Purims. And I don't know if you remember that first year when I was dancing with Rosie Mock. It was a fun year. She was one of the 80 or 90 year olds in the synagogue. And I don't remember too much. I just remember I could, I could not read 
I was trying to read some kind of blessing in Hebrew. I could not get the words out. And I was dancing with Rosie Mock. That's all I remember. Well, if it, if it was the Purim that I'm thinking of, the first Purim where I met you, I said, this is my kind of rabbi. That's <laughs> true. And who would have known that 30 years later, here we'd be talking about rabbi and a lawyer walking to a bar. It's so perfect. Thank God. No, it, it does show this holiday. By the way, the idea of, of a nice big meal and drinking, it's that it sort of reflects that also we were going to be destroyed physically by Haman. This is going to be a genocide, not just a spiritual, you know, the 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 like in the Hanukkah story where they wanted to take away our observance of commandments. This is really wipe us out physically. So it's a very physical, a visceral holiday. And uh, and you know, Judaism does believe that there's a huge value to the physical body and that we have to celebrate it. So in a sense, we're sort of this is a holiday for celebrating the physical body that we don't have as much, you know, on some other, I mean, we don't have it always on, on other, other holidays. They're more sublime, but there's always usually good eating on these holidays, on all the holidays. Yeah. And, and for, for such a relatively minor Jewish holiday, right? Because we don't typically take off of work. It's not like Shabbat where you have to worry about electricity or anything like that. A lot of non-Jews, I think, know about it. There, there were some funny movies made about it. I know that from what I teach in the Nuremberg trials, there was actually Julius Stryker, the, the famous author and publisher of The Sturmer, sort of this neo, not neo-Nazi, actual Nazi oh, <laughs> rag, the, the OG Nazis, you know, they're, they're anti-Semitic and pornography rag. When he was put at the gallows after the Nuremberg trial, he yelled out Purim Fest 1946. And everybody's wondering, what is that all about? And and then some, you know, some people who like to play with the the numbers and the numerology and things like that looked at the Megillah and said, "There's something interesting here that the letters in the Megillah, right around where the the ten sons of Haman were hanged, the, right. the three letters Tuf, Shin, and Zion, the last three numbers mm-hmm. of the Jewish New Year of five seven o seven, which corresponds to 1946." Yeah, and yeah. there's other parallels between the two stories. There's something in the Megillah about them saying that let Ham- Haman's ten sons be hanged, you know, on this other day. And everyone's saying, "What's this other day they're talking about?" Yeah. And sure enough, 1946, there were ten who were hanged at Nuremberg, and that day also happened to be Hoshana Rabbah, where God supposedly seals the verdicts from Rosh Hashanah for the coming year. So, so many interesting parallels. I don't know if you think there's any validity to those, or if you think that's just fun game playing well i think somewhere in the middle that it's uh, look i think if it makes it me if it brings out the meaning of the text and i do think that the nazis were heirs to amalek and to haman and there is such a parallel and it's just so tragic that it didn't work out as well needless to say in the holocaust and we weren't saved by some miracle there's some really interesting alternate history books that talk about what would have happened had we been able to, you know, let's say the British would have gone in when there was, a, instead of the uh, Munich Treaty, then Chamberlain, but, you know, they would have gone in or something like that, or whether there would have been, let's say there would have been a state of Israel in 1938 instead of in 1948, what would have happened? So, but, but, you know, I so I, I whenever there's something that brings out meaning, current meaning in either the Torah or our, our Tanakh, our Bible, Book of Esther, I think it's it's good. It catches our attention. 
you know, whether this could be, you know, how tight that is and whether that's the reason for it, you know, I don't know so much, but I, I think, you know, if it, if it's a gripping story, and I remember hearing that story, I must've been in college in 82 or 83. So it's, I've heard it for over, it's over 40 (laughs) years old, certainly. Um, That old chestnut, right? (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's an, you know, whatever makes it meaningful is, is helpful. As long as you don't say the reason I celebrate Purim is because of those small little letters that equal 1946 and all that, you know, but, but as an addition, I, as it's sort of something that brings out um, sort of some passion and some ideas and some excitement and some meaning, I think it's great. Just the frosting on the cake. Yeah. You know, I should say, I actually was at a rabbinic conference this past week and uh, Rabbi Aryeh Leibowitz was talking about the laws of Purim and, you know, Again, like you said, John, you know, it's not the same prohibition against work, but it seems that the prohibition is you really don't try not to lose the the feeling of quorum. So if you're going to work, like maybe have a, a bottle of schnapps, you know, scotch next to you on your desk. And John, I bet you have a little bit stashed away at work. Is that OK? Is that legal? I have more than a little bit. I am well known for the corner of my office being a sanctuary for said libations. And I'm teaching that night. So that'll be interesting if I take just enough to be a better teacher, but not too much to be sloppy. Perfect. That's that's the attitude. Yeah. So we gotta, you know, can't don't can't forget about the day and you know, just have that that little all those little reminders. It is meant to be really just a happy time and not a restrictive time. It's a great, it's a great hog. It's a great holiday. I mean, I mean, you know, some people, it's a little bit annoying, it's a little over the top, but especially when you have kids involved and kids carnivals, those are always fun. And we used to, I remember Rachel, I had to put on the big carnival that Anchi Emmett used to have, still has, I'm sure, on Purim. And yeah, it's it's great to see that kids get into it. And especially since we don't normally dress up, right, on, on Halloween. It's I mean, whatever you can. I think we discussed that even. But yeah. but Purim, you're supposed to dress up. So we have, I can't tell you what our costume is going to be, but the Lopatins have a costume. We're very excited. Um you always have great costumes, although the one time I remember you were officiating a wedding in a <laughs> Superman costume, and if I recall right, the uh, the mother-in-law told you, Rabbi, great service, lose the costume. Yeah, exactly. She didn't even say great service. She said <laughs> no more. And it was, it, yes, the mother-in-law told the wedding director, and the wedding planner said, Rabbi, no more surprises. (laughs) (laughs) And and with you, that's hard to do. (laughs) It's But usually Superman went over very well at weddings. And, you know, people have a sense of humor. They're supposed to be happy, fun times. So usually Superman went, I think currently... Superman is on a diet. So I don't well, <laughs> we should talk about that. Why on earth do you wear Superman costumes to wedding? I think the this is an interesting idea. Yes. Well, this shtick at a wedding, you're supposed to, because basically you're supposed to try to make the bride and groom happy. And, you know, it's, I've been at weddings where the bride has cried. You know, it's a tough, it's a, you know, it's a wonderful time. Well, Rachel was crying because my father had just died a year ago and year before, and my mother had died before and Rachel's mother had cancer and oh my gosh. So there's a lot of crying in my wedding, but, but I remember it well. 
What's that? I remember it well. Yeah. But then you got to get the bride and groom to be happy. And so I think that's sort of part of like the shtick, like having Superman there. I have a great picture of one of our friends who got married, who loved it, who you could see him in his tuxedo lifting me up and uh, I can fly, you know, so usually Superman went over, but that's sort of, it's a good question. Also, why do we wear masks and costumes on, on Purim? And one of the explanations, uh, Rabbi Penner gave it uh, also at this conference, sort of we wear masks to, what he said is that we have to realize that we're always wearing masks, that we're, you know, we're always navigating between being open. We talked about this before with different contexts with Snowden, with, you know, transparency. And when we're not, we can't be transparent. And that's as Jews human beings, as government officials, as whatever our yep. role is, you know, and, and, you know, John, you as a lawyer, you know, when you're allowed to say things and when not, you know, so that's sort of this story of Purim is how to survive in the diaspora. So that's sort of maybe the, maybe the original meaning of a, of a costume. Well, what I'm talking about Tuesday night in our national security law class is the balance between security and freedom and we're talking about EITs, enhanced interrogation, aka oh torture, and oh Guantanamo, and and oh. the what we did, you know, some of the excesses, was it worth it? You know, difficult questions to ask. And I know that Israel, e even the last few days, has had an internal dialogue and discussion around how far to take national security and what to do vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. I know you've been thinking about it a lot. Yeah, some of the intense interrogations that Israel does are when they catch these, what I think are terrible Israelis who are terrorizing Palestinians and innocent Palestinians. And, you know, any kind of harm that you do to innocent people to, to terrorize is, is, is terrorism. So I know they're also, you know, they're kind of a equal opportunity, the police, when they, uh, whether they catch Arab terrorists or, or whether they have Jewish terrorists, who are, of course, many, much fewer, the Jewish terrorists, but they're really aggressive in trying to find out what the story is through, you know, interrogation. But yeah, I mean, Israel's just gone through a really, this last week, it was just with, with terrible, young, innocent people, Jews being killed and, and you know, people that, Columbia college students, student and just horrific. And then horrific behavior from the, again, a small group, but dozens and dozens of Israelis and Smotrich, Minister Smotrich like, sort of defended it or, or talked about it in a positive way of going into the, the, visual, the village of Huara and uh, burning it down. And I know there's been discussion like you call it a pogrom or not, but these are Jews acting in a way that we used to see the anti-Semites in Europe, you know, the, the Hamans acting. And so it was really a very difficult week. And I guess that's the most, like, like we cannot let, this goes back to that day of hate. We cannot let the haters and the terrorists and the people that want to destroy the state of Israel turn us into people that attack innocent people that are cruel. And I'm, I'm not living in Israel. I understand but we, I do it. We do have to speak out in defense of of innocent, vulnerable people. So it was really a very tough week. Yeah, and and we have to be careful, right? As as to what 
it's forcing us to do as a people. I remember Golda Meir had this great quote yeah. about the Arabs and saying, you know, we can forgive them for killing our children. We cannot forgive them for forcing us to kill their children. Yeah. And I think what she was trying to say is that she is turning us into people we don't understand, respect, admire of our own midos, our own values when we do those sorts of things. Yeah. Exactly. I really, and look at the vast majority of, I think what we've seen over the last few weeks is the incredible civil society that Israel has to whatever your position is on the judiciary to see 250,000 people gathering, carrying Israeli flags. These are patriots, Israeli patriots, and yet protesting the government's moves and, uh, castration really of the judiciary not to be judgmental but you know it's not just you right and it's not a bunch of tree huggers i mean i i read just recently sirat Maktal, which is the the unit basically their delta force right. that did the famous Entebbe raid even even they the, those who were involved in that mission sent a letter to netanyahu that was absolutely scathing so this is not a a far left you know i've seen people comment this is like woke israel and far left no. and it's not it seems to be going mainstream not that we mind tree huggers. Tree huggers are wonderful people. No, we love but, tree huggers. Uh, but this is a yes, yeah, so much broader than that. And and you know the the high tech industry, the finance industry. I did see there was a list of a hundred professors that supported the judicial moves, but that's a drop in the bucket. The vast majority are really protesting. And uh, look, I hope it's a responsive democracy, Israel. I hope the government. And the Likud party is responsive to it. And I I, I can't say I, I quite feel for Netanyahu, but I'm hoping that Netanyahu is the man who can rein in some of the radical elements of his of his coalition. But again, it, it is a very uplifting. People donated a million shekel to the town of Huara after that fire. And to see the pictures of the Israeli soldiers rescuing people, Arabs in Uara, you see that it's not Israel. That is not what Israel is about. Those vigilantes going in and terrorizing that town that they guessed the terrorists came from. So really, in Israel is, is in some ways, the society of Israel feels healthier than ever. We'll see what happens to the government and the judiciary, but the society of Israel looks healthier than ever. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're right. I, I think it is a inoculation, right, against further radicalism that society is coming together and saying, you know, in the same vein as we're seeing with respect to the, the war on terror, you know, the judiciary is the one who put the brakes on some of the more radical elements of what happened. And, you know, when I teach it, I, I say, look, it's easy for us 20 years later to criticize the Bush administration or later administrations in terms of what they did on the war on terror. After all, you know, there were no significant terrorist attacks after 9-11, something that I think nobody would have thought after really? the first attack. So we have to be somewhat uh, with a sense of humility ar around the difficult position that the Bush administration was placed in. That being said, it was only the Supreme Court that, you know, a handful of major cases that told the Bush administration, no, you have to give these people trials. You know, no, you have to give these people habeas corpus relief. You have to do these things that part of a civilized society, both under domestic law and under international law, you can still 
have a legitimate regime of going after terrorists and making sure they get trials. And, and you can even have trials that are different from the normal trials that we do every day for regular criminals. But you can't absolutely, in a sweeping way, take away their rights. And once you subtract the judiciary out of the mix, yeah. all that's left is you know the potential for you know sort of the the most radical security minded elements of any administration to take it to the extreme and we talk about this in class as well that at some point the perception of self defense becomes aggression yeah yeah it's so interesting i mean i we need these checks and balances and uh, it's it's interesting that in our tradition the king and you see it in king david there are the, there's the prophet who rebukes King David when he sins. And again, in last week's Haftarah, in last week's prophetic reading that we do in synagogue after the reading from the uh, Pentateuch, from the five books of Moses, we read from the prophets, read from the book of, of 1 Samuel, where Saul, King Saul, he doesn't wipe out a Amalek the way he's supposed to. And the prophet Samuel comes in and rebukes him. So you had a lot of different layers of, of checks and balances. And then actually Saul does get out of hand and wipes out the city of Nov. But, but ideally, there are the checks and balances. There is the court. And in, even in Israel, there is the Sanhedrin. In ancient Israel, there was supposed to be a court that had to be consulted when you want to go to war. When the king wants to go to war, they have to consult either the high priest who has the breastplate, which we read about in this week's portion, or and or the Sanhedrin, the court, and the prophet gets involved. Everyone gets involved. It's, you know, Jewish decision-making. So you really <laughs> need checks and balances. And it, it is a little scary that the, you know, Israel is 75 years and has been operating without a constitution and with a Knesset that originally the parliament of 120 was supposed to replace itself with some, you know, a logical system. And it's worked incredibly well, as Danny Gorda said. I mean, Israel's a miracle, but it really might be time to get a little bit, at least a, a, a con not just a constitution, but a little bit of a consensus on a little bit of the constitution of the role of the judiciary versus the elected Knesset. So we'll see what happens. Well, we covered a lot of turf today, and we have tried to do that delicate balance between safety and freedom and security and being opaque versus transparent. We really covered the waterfront here. Great. And look, John, have a great Purim, and everyone be safe. Don't, again, my son Judah, really, he'll argue with you that drinking is not a mitzvah in Purim. So, but if you take a little bit, just everyone really be careful and be responsible. And of course, don't know, don't drink and drive and, but have a, and at the same time, have a great time in Purim. Freilich Purim to you and yours. Hey, Freilich and Purim, Purim Sameach. Take care, John. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to get our next episode delivered right to you. If you really like us, please consider leaving a review and sharing this with a friend. That would really help our efforts. And finally, to contact us and for more show-related information, please visit our website, rabbilawyerbar.com. Special thanks to our production team, David Stone for the introduction music, 
Andrew Bauman for the artwork, and I'm Nicholas Tantillo. This podcast is co-produced with Front and Social Studios in Chicago. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Copyrighted material, all rights reserved.